0: Thanks to Audible for supporting the Motley Fool and Industry Focus for a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. Go to audible.com/fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it's Tuesday, October third. Joining me on the show today via Skype is Senior Fool.com contributor Asit Sharma. Hey, Asit, great to have you back.
1: Vince, thanks as always for having me back.
0: Yeah, sure. So, fools, we are going to turn our attention to the high-end luxury corner of the consumer retail world for this episode. And if we watch the clock and we have... Enough time. We'll also offer some quick updates in the back half of the show as well. So for high end retail, uh, this is not something we cover very often in industry focus, and we want to look at Tiffany and Company ticker T I F. So this is a luxury brand with a lot of history and cachet. Charles Louis Tiffany founded the business 180 years ago, and I'm sure many fools are familiar with the reputation the company has when you think about the legendary blue box and how regularly the company is featured in popular culture decade after decade. Uh, the company states outright in its 10K that the brand is its single most important asset and will invest heavily to maintain its brand perception. So that means premium customer service, uh, paying for spots uh, for its stores in high end malls and luxury areas, selling lots of expensive diamonds and precious stones. So jewelry makes up 90% of the company's business, and specifically, products with diamonds make up almost 60% of annual revenue. So I said the stock is up about 30% in the past year, uh, handily outperforming the broad market. Can you tell us about some of the latest
1: developments at the company? Sure. The most important development begins with the top line. Uh, sales have dropped about 6% over the last two years. Uh, in 2015, Tiffany and Company booked $4.25 billion in sales, and that's dropped over the last two years to about $4 billion uh, in 2016. So, as a result, Tiffany replaced its CEO, Frederic Humanal, who was only there for 22 months, with Alessandro Bogliolo in uh, July. That's good timing there. Hey, Tiffany and company, can you please, next CEO hire, give us a name that's easier to pronounce. (laughs) Um, But having said that, uh, Bogliolo is the former CEO of Italian jeans and fashion house Diesel. Clothing Company, and he also had a long stint in Bulgarian Company, which, for those of you who love high-end fashion and maybe live in a big city, New York, Chicago, you've certainly seen beautiful stores and their beautiful products, a worthy competitor to Tiffany Company. So, Oliollo's mission is to expand Tiffany's cachet, as Vince mentioned, to a younger demographic, to millennials, uh, to revitalize the brand without impacting that strong resonance it has as a, an aspirational brand, and a brand that, at the end of the day, stands the test of time. So those are the most recent developments. Yep, for Tiffany Company.
0: I would say yeah, the timing there, by the way, uh, you mentioned his CEO is perfect because his official start date happened to be yesterday, and so this. Uh, you know, as we watch the progress the company makes, it really is starting kind of day one right now. Um, and some big opportunities that you see management mention, and you see them play out in the numbers a bit. Um, so there's this new leadership change. Uh, they talk about new product categories that are intended to appeal to some of those younger consumers that you mentioned. Uh, they talk about the growth of their online sales, which are still a small portion of the company's business at this point. I believe six percent um, as of the end of 2016 or their fiscal 2016. And then they also have their international footprint to lean on. You'll see that going back through some of the quarterly reports, you'll notice a trend in that the Asian markets, uh, which the company breaks out into Japan and Asia Pacific, uh, and for that Asia Pacific region, China makes up over half of that. Um, they've, uh, those regions have tended to deliver strong results, um, either flat or positive growth compared to some of the declines in the company's biggest market, the Americas and the U.S. specifically, which makes up almost half of all revenue. But uh, I feel like a company like this, uh, will face some cyclical challenges um, in that economic downturns will often hurt luxury sales, um, and the company experienced uh some, some struggled a bit during the financial crisis but another long-term headwind that i want to focus on is something that you mentioned and it's kind of like the 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 topic on people's minds right now and that seems to be a decreasing interest in diamonds especially mo- among the younger consumers uh, with some of the controversy surrounding sourcing for precious stones for example with conflict diamonds and in general you know we've talked in other industries whether it's with restaurants consumer uh, packaged goods snacks beverages whatever it may be people people are worried about environmental concerns, people are worried about sourcing and sustainability and that seems to be flowing into this business as well. You know, what uh, what is the company really facing here?
1: The company is facing uh, a similar problem that we've seen in many industries that we talk about here for consumer goods fans. We'll talk about Coca-Cola a little bit later in this show, yep. but that's a great analog. Uh, Coca-Cola's been impacted by changing consumer tastes. Um, the, the fact that if you have small children, and you've grown up in this society and have more sustainable bent about you and are more health conscious, you're not necessarily going to give your kids as much of that beverage, Coca-Cola, as you drank when, when you were small. The same with Tiffany, that we have these many cycles within the larger waves where consumers' perceptions of brand, of what's behind the brand evolve, and for Tiffany, it has to be careful about the sourcing of its diamonds, and it has to show the consumer that they can enjoy the product, that is the aesthetic quality of the product, the brand cachet, but also feel good about the provenance of that. Where did the diamond come from? Uh, is it responsibly s- sourced? Is it a blood diamond? So that's a drag that's that's Tiffany is going to have to meet, and uh, continue to have brand perception that customers can feel good about, I think you can meet that challenge. What's interesting to me is that it's gone all the way to the other extreme uh, to deal with a little bit less high-margin revenue from the retail diamonds, in that it's in the wholesale diamond business. and This is something that I really wasn't as much aware of um, until I was doing uh, prep as we were preparing for this segment. Uh, The company has a fast-growing business, particularly in Asia in the wholesale diamond trade. Now, that's got a much smaller margin than the luxury jewelry, the pendant necklace that you buy in their flagship stores. However, um, in this last two quarters, in the last two quarters, the company's booked $61 million of revenue from wholesale diamond trade. Now, that's only 3% of Tiffany company's total revenue over the last two quarters of that $1.8 billion I mentioned but it's growing at a 50% clip year over year. So, you can see how, within a few quarters, if it can maintain that focus, this low-margin part of the diamond trade will be a bigger portion of the company's bottom line. A little bit of a drag on earnings, but it's a smart way, just as Coca-Cola has moved away from only selling those sugary sodas, Uh, and as we'll talk about a little bit later, is moving into some other types. Of products that customers can feel
0: better about. Well, why don't we just jump right into that, Acid? Um, what uh, I think this is a product of, or you know, going to be a focus for the new CEO as he uh, heads up uh, the operations for the company. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the company is kind of expanding into to also try and help uh, in terms of appealing to uh,
1: the younger consumers that it wants to bring on board? Sure. It's two big picture avenues that Tiffany and Company is taking. One, like other companies of its ilk and in many industries, it's firming up its approach to e commerce. And this is one industry which you can see Amazon is not, Amazon.com is not as much of a threat as it is with so many companies we talk about on this show. It almost seems that whatever segment we have, Vince, Amazon looms large. Yep, that.
0: absolutely. But,
1: Tiffany & Company has a really nice e-commerce portal, which tries to recreate the experience of being in the stores. It's difficult, let's be honest, to match the experience. If you've had the opportunity to walk into one of their larger stores, it's impossible to actually recreate that. But you can recreate some of the ambiance, some of the desire around the product. And what I love about this is that Tiffany Tiffany & Company has done a smart job of breaking its products into different price segments. So very quickly when you visit the home page after a click or two, it just flat out gives you the choice. Here are products under $250, then it gradates into uh, up to $2,500 and beyond. Sort of like when you do a sort on Amazon, which I'm, I'm somewhat cheap <laughs> in some things, so I often will sort by price you don't feel like you've lost the luxury of experience, but you can quickly go to the price point that interests you. and I think that's um, a really good approach on their part, and will increase the flow of millennial traffic. Millennials, as a whole, I don't think they're cheap like me, I'm a bit older, but I think they're thrifty. They know what they want, and they know how much they're willing to pay for certain products, especially luxury items of the type that Tiffany sells, mm-hmm. so that flow going through their portal to completing that, converting that customer, is, is pretty well done. The other thing that the company is also pragmatically undertaking is to widen its product line. They're moving more into products like watches, and this year they will launch a um, or improve and expand the, their women's line of watches, which is a huge market. The current CEO has experience with that. For those of you who are into the fashion house of diesel, you know that they have very attractive watch offerings. So, not simply price points, but looking at what millennials buy, what's important to them. They may not be in the market for a beautiful um, diamond or heart shaped brooch like your grandmother was, but they could use a watch because they're tired of staring into their phone sure. uh, four hours a day. No, I, I think. That
0: that's just a p- kind of piece of the strategy that the company will have going forward. And at the same time, I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, you know, when we're doing research for this, uh, I found a lot of headlines uh, talking about how uh, high-end jewelry, diamonds, are kind of on this really strong downward trends in, in terms of popularity. Uh, like we mentioned with uh, millennials, with younger consumers in general. But I feel like that also. It, you know, a company like Tiffany, with a brand that's also very aspirational. You know, they talk about how they stock or they will invest in their inventory to have lots of uh, very pricey and extravagant uh, diamonds and precious gemstones because they want customers to go into the store and and feel like there are things that they cannot afford. It's aspirational, and I feel like that is something for young consumers that they will grow into over time as their tastes change, as their tastes mature, as they grow older. Um, I think that is that the long term picture for this company, you know there are always going to be people who appreciate what Tiffany represents in terms of the luxury world. Um, so it will always have kind of that moat. But any final thoughts from you, Asset, in terms of uh, you know this challenge that the company faces and and just thoughts on what the outlook might be?
1: I think the company will be able to meet the challenges we talked about earlier and also these declining trends of interest in diamonds. That's somewhat geographically based. Uh, in the United States, we have a very advanced society on the curve of industrial development, but uh, again, in China, if you look at India, which has this burgeoning middle class, and they love to buy gold objects, diamonds are the next step up. There is a market out there. It depends on where their focus is, and the company avidly seeks locations in Southeast Asia to expand, so they know where they're future customers who will still be interested in uh, diamonds exist. And I think that's one, simply numbers for them is one way that they will be able to counteract the trends that we see in places like Europe, United States, where that interest is somewhat declining. And just last point on Tiffany, I really do buy management's approach in saying that their name is their most important asset. It's one of the few brands that you can think about that has had staying power for just decades and decades and decades. Listeners, many of you have seen uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's or read Truman Capote's book. Both of those are excellent. If you haven't, I recommend. That's great for this weekend, watch Breakfast at Tiffany's. But Truman Capote wrote that book in 1958. And to me, the name is just as bankable as it was some 60 years ago. So I think that they can parlay that asset and really overcome any near term challenges. And that's what you want to see as a long term investor.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Asit. And speaking of the book, uh, I want to thank Audible for supporting industry focus. I've been listening to The Girl Who Takes an Eye for an Eye, which is the latest installment of the Millennium series. I fell in love with the non traditional heroes in that story back when I first saw the Swedish film adaptations. And I ended up burning through the original trilogy then the fourth book, and now the latest installment came out just a few weeks ago. I've been trying to pace myself and enjoy it slowly during my commute, and Audible has been my constant traveling companion in the mornings and afternoons. The beauty is that Audible can make your commute an escape that you actually look forward to. In your car, you can have access to an incredible selection of bestsellers, mysteries, thrillers, and motivation. Personally, when I'm walking to the metro or sitting on the train, that is my time to catch up with new books, and I've been checking off more books than ever from my reading list with the help of Audible. And for our foolish listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com/fool and browse their unmatched selection of audio content, download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Again, get your free audiobook at audible.com/fool and transform your commute. Ride right with Audible. So for our next update here, we have two stories, and the first is with Coca Cola. So they opened the week with the news that the company would be acquiring Tapo Chico for over $200 million. So I've never had a chance to try its products myself, but Tapo Chico is an imported sparkling water brand from Mexico that is very popular in select regions of the country, especially Texas, which makes up about 70%. Of Topo Chico sales, the brand has a long history dating back over 100 years to 1895, and that seems to be a big part of its allure and popularity with consumers. So, I said this deal was made as part of Coca-Cola's Venturing and Emerging Brands unit, and we talked about this unit before. It's a really interesting part of the company. Can you tell us uh, about, uh, you know, this this unit within you know the Coca-Cola umbrella?
1: Sure. So, VEB Venturing and Emerging Brands Group functions as a venture capital arm within Coca-Cola. And their mission is to go out into um, very like far reaches of the soft drink world, mm-hmm. or beverage world, and find companies which are developing brands which Coca-Cola can buy. Now for Coca-Cola to buy a brand, it really has to have 10 to $20 million in sales. And then it can scale those sales up to 200 million and beyond. But VEB doesn't necessarily have to find companies that are selling that much from the outset. They really take a ear-to-the-ground approach and try to meet with small companies when they're just forming up in startup phase and keep in touch with them, uh, as many venture capitalists do with technology companies, in the hopes that they find a, a brand or label which is starting to gain traction and they have the advantage of being the first mover. They have a relationship with the entrepreneurs and can write a big check acquire the rights, and then scale. Uh, I think that this group has been effective. Uh, some of you drink Honest Tea. That was a transaction that the VEB group uh, consummated. And this week's transaction, uh, also consummated by the VEB group, they did it with the Mexican bottler Arca Continental for $220 million. And this is interesting for those who are wondering how Coke will parlay the strategy of small tuck-in acquisitions. Uh, previously, Coca-Cola was buying up uh, some small labels and manufacturing product, but the company has sold its bottling operations over the past year to bottling partners in North America and throughout the world. And by next year, coca is going to exist more as a marketing company than an actual manufacturer. And this is one of the first transactions we see how great that business model is, because uh, Coca-Cola actually acquired the rights to uh, Topo Chico rather than buying all the, the manufacturing and trying to go bottle this product itself.
0: Yeah. I Well, I, I want to mention uh, a few other aspects of. How the venturing and emerging brands unit approaches its investments, and then kind of apply that to this latest purchase that they've made for about 220 million dollars. So you know the unit was established in 2007, and again they're looking for these potential billion dollar brands. But the thing is, they're focused on ones or products that are outside of Coca-Cola's traditional carbonated soda and sugary beverages, Um, because they uh, the business unit claims to think five to 10 years ahead about where the beverage industry is going, and you know the leaves seem to um the signs of the leaves seem to point away from uh, some of those traditional Coca-Cola sodas, and uh, you mentioned Honest Tea, for example. Um, you know, this was a pretty early success, I think, for the company. They made an initial investment of over forty million dollars in 2008, when the company had less than 100 employees and just 30 million dollars in revenue. But almost a decade later, um, you know, Coca-Cola has fully taken over the Honest Tea brand, and the latest number from 2015 puts Honest Tea sales at almost 180 million dollars. So the formula here. Is, you know, they have phase one, they identify the opportunities, and phase two, they take a venture capital role and kind of make that initial investment. And that seems to be where we are here with Tapo Chico. So the next phase then is where they start taking a greater role and usually a bigger investment as the brand grows its reach. Um, and this seems uh, to be a pretty standard uh, formula for the company in terms of what options they have for Tapo Chico in terms of, you know, it has a seventy uh, percent of its sales in Texas. It has super really strong market share there, and. Uh, management has actually spoken to this idea about uh, recreating this success and building more Texases, so basically growing Coca-Cola's share of the still-growing sparkling water industry, which at this point is still dominated uh, by private label store brands that you might see at the grocery store, for example. And the estimates I found pinned uh, Tapu Chico revenue at less than $70 million for 2016. So We know this is not exactly moving the needle for a company this size. Um, you know. Coca-Cola. Keep in mind, despite the fact that their revenue is going down because this restructuring they've done that you mentioned in terms of the the bottling operations, you know, they still had almost forty billion dollars of sales in the last twelve months. Um, so I think, you know, basically you have to uh, think about what the company is going to be able to leverage, and if and I think uh, Coca-Cola is legendary in terms of its ability to kind of leverage uh, its marketing machine and. Allow Tapu Chico to to ride that and, and to scale, uh, even though it's only available in I think 35 states and regions of northern Mexico already. Uh, the brand's not that familiar outside of Texas, and I'm sure Coca-Cola will be working a lot to to remedy that. But if you are a Coca-Cola shareholder, or if you're considering a position in the company, and you're trying to Uh, adopt a foolish long-term perspective. I guess the question becomes, do these satellite brands and venture capital-like investments have the ability to eventually offset some of the major declines that are expected with traditional soda consumption? What
1: do you think, Asit? In this case, it certainly does. Very interestingly, as you mentioned, revenues for Topo Chico are 70% in Texas. If you can visualize a small band uh, on the map of the U.S. border, This uh, drink is actually manufactured in northern Mexico, and it's sold in northern Mexico. So south of northern Mexico and north of Texas, there's tremendous potential. Some of our listeners may know Mexico is the second largest market for uh, Coca-Cola outside of the United States. And Coca-Cola has been hit hard by Mexican government tariffs on sugary soft drinks. So this is an excellent way for Coca-Cola not just to take an exciting brand and scale it, but to make up for lost revenue. It's exactly what you want to see as a long-term shareholder. What's the strategy to replace the decline in revenue? And this is such an opportunity that falls into Coke's hands. I don't know um, how many of our listeners, maybe you can tweet to us if you've tried it, uh, those of you who are down deep in the South, but I have tried it. I've got my hands on some several months ago from my local uh, Latin American store. It's an interesting, drink. It's got a very colorful label. Uh, effervescence is a little bit higher than sparkling waters you might buy here, at least to me. It's got a little a little bit of salt taste to it. So it's something that uh, offers uh, you know different segment opportunity for, for Coca-Cola, a new brand that they can push out there. And it's beloved by hipsters uh, in Texas. So there's that sort of um, cachet that we talked about with Tiffany, they may, may have some hipster cachet that they can expand on. But I, I think it, it absolutely does fulfill that uh, problem that, that you mentioned, Vincent. We'll watch this one to see how far they can scale it in the next few years, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting too, uh, just that popularity that it has um, in Texas, has a lot to do, I think, with the heritage and of, the, of the brand itself. And uh, you know, again, dating back over a hundred years, and the company uh, in the release, there's a Q and A with some uh, executives from the venturing and emerging brands unit, kind of talking about how important it is for them to maintain uh, that heritage and tradition for this brand, despite uh, you know the fact that they're gonna be. Putting it into the machine and and kind of expanding its presence across the country. Um, so uh, you know we'll be watching to see what kind of uh, success they have, whether this can be a next honest tea for them. But ultimately, this uh, this unit within Coca Cola has invested, I think, in something like over forty different brands at this point. Um, not every single one is going to be a major success, but uh, if we know anything about this company, they certainly have the resources and the experience in beverages to. Uh, experiment and to test and find uh, these small labels and kind of help turn them into enormous successes. So, for our last story, um, it's yet another recent development from Walmart. I know we've been hitting a lot of Walmart coverage on the show lately, so I'll tentatively promise that this will be the last bit. Uh, for the king of retail for at least a few weeks if not a few months but I won't deny that it's been pretty fascinating to follow along with the various experiments and new ishi- and new initiatives that Mark lore has rolled out as the head of the company's e-commerce efforts so and that's not to mention what uh, you know Walmart has done with the jet.com business itself so the company actually announced this morning that it would be acquiring a small startup called parcel uh, what's the story here asset parcel
1: is as you say, a small company which focuses on last mile and same day delivery in New York City. Uh, The transaction was not disclosed transaction size, but uh, is said to be about $10 million. So you can imagine, this is a very tiny company. What would Walmart want to do with a company that it can purchase for $10 million that's located in New York City of all places, very dense city? The answer is that Last mile services are the hardest part of the logistics supply chain, the most expensive part, pound for pound. Um, Amazon.com, the fierce competitor for Walmart, has uh, partnered up with the United States Postal Service to solve last mile problems. But, so interesting, in New York City there's a lot of opportunity for Jet.com to have basically a test kitchen for different ventures. And Parcel helps Jet.com. Uh, which Walmart, as listeners remember, was acquired for three billion bucks, helps Jet.com test delivery services within dense populations like New York City. So um, we should talk about Uniquely J, which is Jet.com's answer to the Whole Foods, Amazon.com partnership. Uniquely J will be, uh, it's a service developed by Jet.com to offer high-end food products and also products such as uh, cleaning supplies, uh, bath tissues, to customers for delivery, uh, probably within that same kind of two-hour window that Amazon.com promises. Parcel Jet.com make that last-mile delivery, and it gives, again, this experimental template for Walmart to go into big cities where it doesn't necessarily want to put a super center Places like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and have a supplemental business model, while also trying to kick Amazon.com in the shins.
0: Yep, I think uh, this is where everything kind of comes together. So you know, we have this small startup kind of logistics company that helps to organize the same-day deliveries for New York City. Um, It has the some of the infrastructure, the staff, and experience um, in the city to to ramp up. The potential same-day shipping efforts for Jet.com and Walmart.com in that market, and at the same time, um, I believe that Parcel is already handling some of the uh, deliveries. For example, for Bonobos, which also happened to be acquired by Walmart earlier this year, and that becomes part of this. uh, This I feel like this overall plan where everything's starting to come together a little bit. For the company's e-commerce efforts, um, you know they talk about uh, the Bonobos and ModCloth acquisitions. Uh, so these are uh, men's and women's apparel companies. Uh, now Walmart has recently announced that they intend to make both those brands available on Jet.com. So Jet.com, usually having uh, previously having more of a discount reputation, they're starting to uh, to offer. Those two brands on there, kind of raising the cachet again. An- another time that we're kind of using that, but the brand, uh, the premium essentially that's associated with the site. And then with Uniquely J, they've also mentioned that this private label, Jet.com brand, uh, that's going to roll out with consumer staples in the next couple months, they want it to target some of these urban based millennials. So they'll get a similar theme here because these Uniquely J products are supposed to be higher end to appeal to that target market. And again, um, As you mentioned, this really follows closely on the heels of Amazon, which has made its 365 by Whole Foods products available online. And uh, the initial reports for that said that it was met with great success, a lot of items selling out very quickly. Um, So, we've spoken previously about the solid growth Walmart is enjoying in its digital business. Um, I ultimately believe that this is still a marathon. Like, these are all small moves on the chessboard. For for the company and ultimately Walmart wants to widen its appeal with the help of Jet.com and its reputation as um, kind of a younger, cooler brand while establishing the necessary infrastructure and logistics it'll need to provide greater convenience to customers in these various urban markets. Obviously, starting first with this one parcel deal. Right in New York City, but any other uh, takeaways for you, Asa, in terms of you know what this kind of spells for the future, um, just in terms of this this kind of arms race between the the big retailers.
1: Sure. One last point, and by the way, what a great example, because these are two grandmasters that are that are playing a very long game of chess. I was really intrigued by this acquisition because Walmart is taking such a different approach than Amazon. As everyone knows, Amazon builds fulfillment centers every year all across the U.S. from the ground up, supplies them with amazing automation and technology. Uh, Walmart is picking up on something that I actually was reading about in a supply chain newsletter several months ago, that there's a ton of warehouse space in cities like New York, in Brooklyn, uh, where I believe Parcel is based, uh, in Chicago, in, in almost any big city you can think of, and we've seen how urban drift has created this. It's a space that is unleashed, perfectly usable, and very capital light for a company like Walmart. So it's developing a model where it can have its own quasi fulfillment centers, which are just in big cities, to deliver that last mile much more cheaply than if it tried to compete with Amazon and think of itself as a company that's going to build a bunch of its own fulfillment centers. Of course, Walmart thinks that its super stores themselves are quasi-fulfillment centers, and they have a point because they're all so large. But I'm intrigued just from the real estate aspect of this, again if this is a chess move, to me this is equal to um, a threat on the chessboard, so it's like calling check and the other opponent over time is going to have to make sure that his king is well protected. Sure. So we'll follow that as well.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Asit, for joining me on the show today. And thank you, Fools, for listening. Uh, if you have any thoughts on Tapo Chico, uh, if you tried it, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you have any other questions, you can hit us up on Twitter uh, at MF Industry Focus, or you can send us an email to industryfocus at fool.com. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show. The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program along.